Neil Chilson is here. He is a senior research fellow for technology and innovation at Stand Together. He's also a former chief technologist at the Federal Trade Commission. Neil and I, your host, Corbin Barthold, have a shared interest in complexity theory. So I was very excited when I learned that he was writing a book on the subject. That book is called Getting Out of Control, Emergent Leadership in a Complex World. It is out now. It is very good. And I recommend it. Today, we're going to talk about the book, The Wonders of Complexity Theory, and some deeper philosophical questions about where we're all headed. Neil, welcome back to the Tech Policy Podcast. It's great to be here, as always. Um, as you know, I am, uh, in, for you at least, a new host, but uh, I believe you are one of the show's most frequent uh, outside guests, so it's great to have you back. I love being on this podcast. When, uh, when you and I use the word complexity here, we're using it in a somewhat technical sense. We don't just mean complicated, which is a distinct idea. Uh, so could you start us off by just spelling out what the complexity uh, in complexity theory and in your book is? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. It's also uh, a very difficult one to answer. In fact, uh, the, the area of complex adaptive systems, just sort of the name that this whole field has taken on, uh, there's, there's lots of debates and there's no settled definition of complexity. Um, uh, in my book, I, I refer to a couple of different ones. And I, I um, uh, in particular, uh, Melanie Mitchell's uh, book uh, on, co on com it's called Complexity, a Guided Tour, I think, is offers uh, one example, which is uh, a complex system is one that exhibits non-trivial, emergent, and self-organizing behaviors. And so in some ways, that's it's a bit of a circular uh, definition, because in my book, which focuses a lot on emergent order, I define emergent order as um, the result of a complex system <laughs> that is that is created by the interactions of many smaller components following simple rules with no central control. But that's a lot of verbiage. Maybe uh, some examples would help. Um, complex systems are those where uh, the interactions between lots of individual components create something that's bigger than the intentions or the plans of any one of the smaller components. And so there's tons of these examples in things like the nervous system, the internet, ecosystems, uh, cities, civilizations. And so I like to think of complexity as what is common across all of these really different types of systems. There are some things that are common characteristics across these uh, physical, biological, uh, and technological systems. And so um, some of those uh, consistent features could be things like the fact that there's lots of interactions between smaller components, which is something that makes it complicated, uh, or sorry, complex rather than complicated. The fact that there are uh, no, there's no plan for the system overall, uh, a system might have lots of different purposes. And so, um, you know, what, you, you mentioned the contrast with the word complicated. I, I like to use the example, a car engine is complicated, right? Like 
it has tons and tons of different pieces. Um, most laymen don't really understand how the whole system works, but you could have an expert who could tell you what each part does and what it serves towards the purpose of the system. Uh, and if you took it apart and put it back together, it would still work. Um, you know, at the fundamental level, uh, a car engine has essentially one purpose. It turns gasoline into motion um, and the energy that's stored in gasoline into motion. And uh, that's what makes it a complicated system. That task is not simple. It's complicated, but it isn't complex in the way that we might talk about, um, say, a city or a tree or even a family. Um, those types of complex systems serve many purposes, right? There's not any one purpose that a complex system is trying to serve. And if you took it apart into its component pieces, if you took a city apart into its component pieces and then later tried to reassemble it, it wouldn't be the same city. It would be dramatically different. Or if you did that to a family, for example, that would be dramatically different. And so that's sort of the difference between a, a complicated system and a complex system. You mentioned cities. Uh, Jeffrey West is a physicist who has a great book called Scale. And he is sort of at this interesting crossroads between complexity theory, and, which really looks at things that are uh, often sort of beyond our ability to understand and actually order. And he finds patterns within complex emergent phenomena. So one thing he finds is that as cities grow, they tend to scale in terms of, say, the number of gas stations per population. There are economies of scale. As a city gets bigger, they need, say, fewer gas stations per X number of people. And that this actually holds from whatever, you know, Tokyo to New York to Dhaka. And uh, I bring this up because he was the head of the Santa Fe Institute, which is also where Melanie Mitchell was, uh, or yep. is, I'm sorry. Uh, she wrote a great book, by the way, on artificial intelligence. So she's, yes. her brain is capable of getting around all kinds of, of great ideas. So could you briefly explain, because I feel like it's kind of central to the story at this point, what the Santa Fe Institute is and uh, how you got into, say, Melanie Mitchell's work? Sure. Um so the Santa Fe Institute is, uh, I think it's been called the Mecca for complexity science. It's an independent research center. It was founded uh, to study the, uh, to study complex uh, adaptive systems. Early on, it was uh, largely dominated by people from physics uh, and mathematics. And I think it's grown as, because the application of the, the, the discipline has grown, um, it's grown to look at all sorts of things, sociological, even psychological, um, economics, lots of areas that involve complex systems. Um, uh, Melanie Mitchell, I think I honestly came across her, her work through Russ Roberts. Uh, she actually did a great podcast about that AI book with, with Russ Roberts on his Econ Talk podcast. Um, uh, but I've, I'm, I'm a big fan of her book, which is a very accessible, um, but not dumbed down version of complexity theory. Uh, it deals, it digs into a lot of the history and it's also a pretty um, realistic view of what the, the field has been able to accomplish. One of the interesting things, and I talk a little bit about this in my book, is early on in complexity science, there was this idea that 
because we, if we could identify these general principles across all of these complex systems, it would give us levers to manipulate them in a way that would be very, that would be much clearer. And so I think a lot of people get drawn into complexity science because of that, the idea that, oh, maybe we can distill some key principles and we'll be able to exert control. I think what the, the Santa Fe Institute and complexity scientists have discovered is that actually these systems are very resistant to control, uh, at least the ones that are in the real world. We can study lots of simulations on computers that can, that can show some really interesting things. And we might be able to, like your example um, from West, we might be able to identify sort of post hoc, these really interesting patterns in complex systems. Um, but understanding those patterns doesn't necessarily give us a good way to control. So like, I don't think West would say that his system would tell you where to put the gas stations, right? For example, or, uh, but he would say like, Hey, I noticed this interesting pattern that across different cities where humans have these similar needs, um, even in uh, different geographies, we get this pattern about the relationship between and that's a sort of th that's a sort of problem that complexity science has has um, has brought tools to bear on, uh, but not ones that so much allow prediction or control uh, nearly as much as I think the early at, uh, adherence to the to complexity science hoped. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so West notices in, uh, you know that density in cities creates uh, higher levels of innovation, but that's a tall order to then figure out how to sort of cultivate that. I've heard you on another show talk about the topic, which is, uh, you know, not unique to you or me of just because you can study what made Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley doesn't mean you can just build a new Silicon Valley elsewhere. Many have tried and it turns out to be, be tricky. Um, <laughs> last episode, we mentioned uh, Freeman Dyson and it was sort of like, if you take one thing away, check out Freeman Dyson. And similarly here, uh, one thing to take away from this episode, if you're going to check out someone, you know, Melanie Mitchell's done a lot of great work. So yeah. go check out her, Absolutely. her books. Um, when I try to think of an example of complexity theory, the one that pops into my head is always the uh, like an image of a, a bridge built by an ant colony yeah. to get across something. Because that my brain just explodes when I see that. No individual ant has really any conception in a way that we can relate to of what is happening or why they don't they're not looking at a goal, just all of them using very simple individual chemical directives. They achieve these goals that are, are, you know, the product of, you might say, like the colony mind. And that really inspires me in studying complexity theory and gets me interested in it. And there's all kinds of other things, but that's, that's kind of the one I would hold yeah. up. What got you so interested in complexity theory, you know, to the point where you wrote a whole book centered around it? Well, so early on, I mean, I was interested in this stuff uh, as a kid, largely because of the pretty pictures and my interest in computer science. So, you know, uh, chaos theory, which is, isn't exactly the same thing as complexity uh, or, or uh, complex adaptive systems, but they're very related to each other. Um, is this study of how these very simple mechanisms, these very simple uh, equations, for example, could produce results that are unpredictably out of control uh, in a way. Um, and complexity theory is sort of the flip of that in some ways that very simple, uh, that, that very complex systems often have some 
repeated simple rules at their core. Uh, and your example of uh, ant colonies being able to achieve very complex engineering tasks, including you know cooling and uh, heating their 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 dens and providing um, moving to a new location and and moving across giant obstacles. Uh, all of these are the result of lots of interactions between very simple elements. And, and I got interested in that idea. I think um, just because the pictures were cool, it made it in some ways, maybe I was a lazy programmer as a kid and I wanted to see a big complicated effect from like a very minimal amount of code. That was very, that was so appetizing. It was very aesthetically pleasing as well to say like, look at how simple this is and look at the complex result. Um, like the Mandelbrot so, set would be. A good yeah, thing. exactly. Fractals and all of that were, uh, I was very interested in because of that. And so that drew me in early on and it sort of sat in my brain. It's why I went into uh, computer science more or less. And, but it sort of sat in my brain until I entered the policy world. And there I saw often just this complete, that people just had the wrong metaphor for policymaking and the world in general. And, and so, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time working on telecommunications policy uh, early in my legal career and watching the FCC pass a complicated set of rules, have it create these unintended consequences, and then come back and with complete confidence uh, say like, well, here's the new set of rules that are gonna solve this. Right. And every single time it's just like slapping software patch after software patch on legal code. And and each time with total confidence that they had engineered the problem properly this time. And so um, I just saw the pattern there of a complex adaptive system, which is one in which when you're you're you know, you're pushing down the balloon in this place, like it's it's like the complexity is going to pop up somewhere else. And so uh, seeing that pattern both in the policy space and then in my own uh, attempts to become better at, you know, living life generally, including, uh, you know, we were talking before the show about like managing, <laughs> managing two and a half year olds, right? <laughs> uh, the chaos that that can bring. Um, uh, I just saw a lot of themes across both my, my, professional life and my personal life that that touched on these ideas of emergent order and complexity. Uh, and I wanted to distill that into a book because I'd read lots of books that sort of covered one half or the other of those, right? Like habit building uh, in your personal life or, um, you know, ideas like, you know, like James Q. Wilson's like bureaucracy, like ideas about big picture, about how organizations are designed in, in regulation. And I just wanted to connect those themes across those two. So that's that's what the book is. It's a distillation of uh, complex compl complexity theory and emergent order, and uh, trying to apply it in to leadership, uh, whether you're in the public sphere or in private life. Well, let's talk more about that because, as you mentioned, your book blends a high-level topic, complexity, with a very personal, direct topic of of leadership. Um, so. Specifically, how can we as individuals use our understanding of complexity to become better individual leaders? So I think the key takeaway from my book is 
um, that in these complex systems, we aren't in control. Uh, and that control is something we're, we're often striving for. Um, you know, everybody I think feels like we're not in control or increasingly feels like we might not be in control or that nobody's in control. Uh, but they're often their solution is to pivot to giving somebody control or trying to seize control themselves. And, and what I think the key lesson from my book, although I break it down into six lessons for leaders, um, the key takeaway is that, um, that we aren't in control and that our job as leaders is to figure out what to do uh, to influence the world, even though we don't control it. Um, and so some of the key principles that I offer um, are, you know, accepting this lack of control and being humble about what we can accomplish. I think that's, that's pretty important. We can be ambitious in our plans, but we should be humble about what we expect the effects to be. Um, one of the other principles is expecting complicated results, even from simple changes to a, a complex system. Uh, and I think some of the other ones are, are more economic in uh, sort of based on economic ideas, but like things like pushing decision-making down to the individual elements rather than making decisions at a, a higher up level, you know, in a complex system, if you can embed the ideas and the values of a, a institution in the individual actors, you solve a lot of the problems that come from having to communicate up and down. And so you get that emergent process by embedding the knowledge in the, uh, or the values in the individuals who can then apply those values to the, the problems that they see. And so um, I think those are some of them. One of the other key ones that I, I'm, I'm trying to square a circle here, and I, I'd be curious on your thoughts on this, actually, uh, on how well the book does this. Um, I think often people who uh, you know, are considered classical liberal or libertarian generally are often stereotyped as not caring very much about institutions. And I'm trying to square that circle a little bit with complex, complexity theory, which has both um, you know, individual action as a very important component, but also has hierarchies as a really key part of every complex system. So when I think of something like my body, you know, I have uh, cells, but then I also have organs and I have systems that those organs participate in. And they're all in, inside of a, a container called my body. And then I myself interact with lots of other complex systems outside of that. And so um, being aware of the boundaries and the constraints that these various systems have on us and the importance of those constraints to uh, actually um, fulfilling the purposes that we're trying to achieve, I think is, is really important. And that means paying a lot of attention to institutions, uh, even if that's cuts against that stereotype that people have about people who care a lot about liberty, like I do, uh, that, that, that somehow we think that institutions don't matter. Um, uh, I very much do think they do. And I think my book tries to talk about how as an individual and as a person who values individual action, uh, we can still think that institutions are very important parts to human society and to our ability to achieve uh, the purposes that we're trying to achieve.
that was a really meandering answer to that question. <laughs> well, there's a lot of there's a lot of moving pieces there, and it's so there's there's several things you you can drill down on. So it, I'm not sure concision was even uh, an option. <laughs> I um I think institutions are important. I also think that the people who um, are loudest about how insti- uh, how important they are are often the ones who do the most damage to it. Um, the government official who makes sure that the roads get paved is doing a lot more good than the government official who uh, yells the word justice and talks about sweeping new initiatives to you know take ginormous amounts of money and earmark them for projects with you know no real plan for how it's going to get achieved. Uh, yeah, you focus on small things at a local level and maybe you do get something done, you make a sweeping change to an entire system and you can't even get the website where people sign up to work um, is, is often how these work as a shorthand. Yeah. Now, as a, as a, so, I mean, I guess that in, in one way is a diagnosis of try to think small and, um, and make changes that are within the power of individual humans and beyond that kind of keep, Chesterton's fences in mind, the old idea that uh, if you don't know what the purpose of a fence is, maybe you should try to figure that out before you tear it down. At a larger level, though, yeah, I struggle because I I don't want to turn into just a total cynic or fatalist, but I I do look at systems and I I, I think I'm describing myself, well, who can really know themselves? Uh, I I, I think in systems. I, I I look at long-term trends in history and and there is a degree that forces act that are far beyond human control. You know, was there some individual leader in third century Rome who could have implemented the right set of reforms that would have reversed the trend of the debasement of the currency and reverse the trend of depopulation in rural areas and gotten farm production back up and gotten population growth back up and uh, sort of reverse the trend of corruption in the proletarian guard such that the empire would have uh, lasted, you know, and thrived instead of declining. I mean, when you describe it that way, it kind of seems sort of preposterous. There are these these (laughs) mega trends going on that are very, very hard to reverse. It's like asking somebody to undo rust on a fence or something. It's, all, it's almost at that level. But it's hard because when you talk like that, you lead into exactly what you just said of, well, then you're just, you're useless. You're just sitting there being yeah. a critic. Um, you know, it goes into, and, and this will allow me to hit the shuttlecock back at you <laughs> on, a, on a personal level. You know, you talk about the fates and the Greek gods and, and how it's easy to see complexity and sort of turn it into a, a degree of fatalism. And then uh, in your book, you try to sort of turn it back around and talk about individual agency. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know what's going on in my brain. You, you, you say at one point, we cannot control the weather, but we can control how we think about the fact that it is raining. And I, sorry to be a total cynic, but like, can I really? Like, 
my brain is almost like that ant colony. The ant colony does these amazing things and no individual ant knows what's going on. And just this higher emergent phenomenon exists. And yeah. sorry to get all Sam Harris on you, but often I feel like my neurons are the ants and I am the higher phenomenon, but I have no control over it. I'm just this thing that emerges. And it doesn't, don't get me wrong, it doesn't cause me to not get out of bed in the morning. I could do no other. I, I like to try to work hard. I just do but that yeah. doesn't really mean I feel in control over it. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I touch on this a little bit because once you get down to that level about whether or not um, we as individuals actually control what's going on in our brain, I, I think in some ways you're, you're right that it's a mystery exactly how it works for sure. Um, but it, I, 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 I honestly, I sort of avoid that in the book by saying like, Practically speaking, everybody acts as if they're making choices and therefore I'm not going to dig into this deeply. I, I think we could go all sorts of the, uh, theological and philosophical directions with, you know, are we creating meaning? Is our brain uh, as an emergent process, is it creating meaning uh, and in some ways creating reality? Uh, and that is more or less the same thing uh, as free will. I think we could go lots of directions with that. For the purposes of choosing what to do each day, it doesn't seem that important. It's not that practical to do this. And so like, like you, I'm, I'm willing to say, hey, I don't know for sure that I control my reaction to whether or not it's raining, um, but it does seem that I act that way anyways. And so I can pay attention at least to what I am doing and I can try to modify, modify that and giving myself some tools and putting uh, the restrictions and my habits that help me react in a way that's positive to things that uh, to opportunities and to uh, maybe challenges that I face, I think is worth trying to do uh, whether or not at the core level, I'm actually controlling it. And so uh, I, I think it could be easy to look at the at complexity and say, hey, I'm just gonna throw my hands up and coast here. Uh, like if I'm meant to be something great, I will be. And if I'm not meant to do something important, I won't. Um, but in order for, you know, in order for ants to build that bridge, like the individual ants have to act according to their purpose. Right. And so, um, so I think we don't have a choice in some ways, right. We very much have a responsibility to try to figure out what our purpose is and to pursue that. And we don't know a, how that will turn out. Uh, I think we can't ever know that. And it's possible that the effect is wasted, but in a complex system, the point is that there is an opportunity for the individual to shape the great whole. Um, and not just in a purely additive way, right? It's not like me plus a hundred other people create a hundred times the effect, right? Me plus a hundred other people, my decision might in a complex system have some sort of outsized effect that I am not even aware of and that nobody could have intended ahead of time. And so um, I think your example of Rome is actually somewhat revealing in another way that 
I don't think that probably any one leader of, in Rome saw all of those trends happening, right? They were, that's what we see in retrospect, looking back, telling a story. We are narrative creatures, right? So we look back and we say, let me explain how this complex phenomenon happened. And then we try to tease out all the causation. Um, if we were in that situation, we might be like, well, it's just another day uh, yeah. in the, in the, you know, in the country. And, and so there might not even have been uh, at any point uh, a decision point where a, uh, a ruler ha- could have said like, oh, I can, I can change the course of this, you know, the, the decline of Rome by doing X, Y, and Z. No doubt there were plenty of decisions, including some bad ones, many bad ones, I think, that, that leaders in Rome made that contributed to the fall um, but you probably can't put any one cause uh, to any one decision. And I think that's true for us as individuals in things that are much smaller than, you know, obviously the fall of uh, a great empire, which are when we should try. Uh, I think uh, my book in some ways is a call for us to be to pay attention to what we're doing at the very least. Right. Because um, while we don't know what the effects could be, being mindful of what we're choosing to do at any one time is going to give us the great, the, the most potential to make a change that, that matters probably mostly to ourselves and to the people who are closer, closest to us, but possibly to our communities, the institutions we deal with and to the nation as a whole. Um, I give some examples in the book where um, individuals couldn't have really known that what they, what, the, the dramatic effect that their, dis, their small action would have in advance, but it did have a big effect uh, in the long run. And I think the opportunity for us as individuals to act in a way that um, has big effects and can help shape the institutions that will change the world. I think we, we, we don't have the option. I, I, I think if we, I don't think we have the option to sit back and say, well, you know, we'll just see what happens. I'm not going to try. Uh, I think, I think we do have to try. And uh, I think we, in many ways, I feel like we have a moral obligation to try to make the world a better place. So when I get up in the morning to the degree that I try to make the world a better place, you know, I think, and I, I don't know, I probably have a similar world outlook to you. I tend towards this belief that, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of Hayekian. Hayek was interesting. He was kind of a proto-complexity theorist. In his oh way. yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, trying to trying to spread that idea and going back to my point of of imparting this notion that uh, we we need to get back to local responsibility and we need to implement simple rules and people trying to implement top-down solutions often do more harm than good. And that in its way is my message to improve the world. It's sort of in the way that you might describe, like there are philosophers and anti-philosophers. It's almost like I am an anti-big save the world mission person, and that's my mission to save the world. Um, (laughs) And I have a lot of, I, I hope, epistemic humility about that though, which makes me have uh, an impulse towards gradualism and not wanting big sweeping solutions. But all of this is kind of recursive because there's so much complexity and so much uncertainty. Like sometimes, I I don't know, you could go back to the Rome example, maybe um, 
drastic measures are actually the only thing that will save you. And as you mentioned, maybe that's just something that tends to be the case in hindsight. And a lot of people go straight to drastic action as a prescription because everything has to be an emergency because it's in their political interest or whatnot. Nonetheless, the point stands. I mean, a lot of people to bring up, uh, say, Paul Ehrlich and uh, Norman Borlaug, you know, there's this big belief in the 60s that we we're going to have mass famine. It turned out to be massively wrong because we innovated. There was the Green Revolution. Um, and basically, advances in technology outpaced the needs of a growing population for food. But just because that was true in the 60s and 70s, does not mean automatically it's true today. Every prophecy of doom is wrong, except the last one. And so you go out and you make this big message and you say optimism and you, you get great economic growth. And then whoops, it turns out that, you know, now the degrowth people are right. And the need for resources is outstripping the pace of innovation. And there's a huge catastrophe. There's this um, almost like this feel of appointment in Samara to it all which is of course the story of the man who sees the devil in Baghdad. So he's spooked and he races to Samara where the devil was already planning to meet him that night. And uh, so it's, it's just, I mean, I hate to continue to be the cynic, but the amount of complexity, you look at the world and my impulse therefore is gradualism and epistemic humility, but we live in this world where people have these total certainties and it's all just a huge mess. So if you're a person who, is say young and you want to go out and you have a vision to change the world, you know, how do you balance that epistemic humility and that willingness to act toward a cause with gradualism and being careful and, but, but also trying to do something because you, right. you mentioned like small actions to change the world. How does any individual know that their small action is going in the right direction? Yeah. So um, yeah, it's a tough question. Uh, I think one of the keys is to think in terms of processes rather than outcomes. Um, I, I think what, what often happens is, you know, somebody like uh, Ehrlich looks at an outcome that he doesn't like. And he says, whatever potential outcome that we have, we need to avoid that outcome. But the question is, what damage are you doing to the process in the meantime? Or how are you changing the process? How does your aiming for a specific outcome, what are you willing to do past that outcome? Like what, what, what um, are you only interested in the outcome uh, to the exclusion of how you get there? And maybe to make this a little bit more concrete, uh, when we're trying to build habits, for example, I think we often think, oh, I would like to, you know, I would like to lose weight and here's my, here's the weight goal I want to be at, or I would like to, you know, build muscle and here's what I'd like to be able to lift. But what's, what's actually sustainable over the long term, and what will is the processes that we build. And so goals can be important because they help us build processes that work over time. And I think that's true in the policy space as well. If we're doing damage to the processes, let's say the economic processes that have produced prosperity, but have also produced challenges, say resource challenges. Um, uh, if, we're, if we're not paying attention to the process, we may actually get rid of the, the, the good benefits of a good process 
And that could be higher than the, the, uh, the payoff that we're trying to, the, the outcome that we're trying to achieve. So, um, so what I would say to, to people who are young and ambitious and want to change the world is that uh, they should act, but they should be aware that in a complex system, probably the way that they're going to have the most effect in the world is in participating in institutions that are much bigger than them uh, and trying to serve the purpose or shape the purpose of an institution, which is itself an iterative long-term process. And so any one outcome that they might want to achieve, you know, publishing a paper, stopping a law, you know, passing a law, um, that's the short, that's the short run benefit, but the long-term benefit should be making the institutions that produce that benefit work better. That is, that is how you really change the world over the long term is by shaping the complex systems. One of the thing about complex systems is that they, um, they have momentum, right? And they're resistant to uh, changes in the outside environment. That's what makes them a system that's identified as separate from the outside environment. And so, um, what that means is it can be hard to change their direction, but that when you do manage to incrementally change their direction, they have momentum in that direction. And so um, I, I think in some ways I'm, I'm saying something as simple as, you know, you want to, you want to think about what, what you're leaving behind afterwards or what, what are you contributing to that's going to outlast you as an individual and that in almost every case is going to be some type of institution and making institutions stronger rather than towards their purpose and more fit to their purpose rather than weaker and more fit to your individual purpose, uh, I think is a goal we should all uh, aspire to. And it's one of the ways that we as individuals can help change the world. I'm sort of in awe at how well you took my cynical question and made it into a positive response. And I hear shades of Yuval Levin in there, if I'm not there's, there's I quote Yuval uh, um, a good amount in the book. Yeah, yes. in the book, and which it brings to another theme of complexity, uh, incrementalism. And you, know, you and I are both shaped by the thoughts of many, many other people, as is every human. And so I'm glad we're mentioning a lot of those people on the show. Check out the work of Yuval Levin. He's fantastic. And then I'll tie it into uh, the person who gave me that idea of incrementalism and it's all building. And that's Matt Ridley, who's also in your book. He has a great yep. book called The Evolution of Everything. Sorry to spend an episode about your book pumping other books, but- No, it's great. That's that's uh, one, one of the main, you know, if any, if a book is anything, it is a complex web of other people's ideas that you've distilled into an artifact, right? So I talk a little bit about this in the book, right? My my thinking process on this is informed by all of those people. It will continue to be informed by them and many other people. And in the meantime, I've produced this like little distillation of that of that web of ideas. And so connecting people to those other ideas is a major purpose of the book. So I'm glad we're talking about all great, people. Great, great. Yeah, you're a node in the web, you know, exactly. of, of thought. Fantastic. So Matt Ridley really helped crystallize my thinking about, about that point. Um, and Matt Ridley talks about technology and its evolutionary momentum. And he, in that idea, he's building on the work of Kevin Kelly, who you also cite in your book. Yes. Um, so let me get to that. The concept of the technium 
which is the idea that technology is basically, uh, you can almost say a living, self-sustaining global organism at this point, that it has its own evolutionary momentum. I'll quote Ridley. He says, we ride rather than drive the innovation wave. Technology will find its inventors rather than vice versa. Short of bumping off half the population, there's little we can do to stop it happening, and even that might not work. And if there's no stopping technology, perhaps there is no steering it either. Technological change is a far more spontaneous phenomenon than we realize. That's from uh, the evolution of everything. And I just, I found that to be a very mind expanding idea. Some people find the concept of the technium really exciting. I think Ridley is in there. Some people find it absolutely terrifying. Uh, There's an author who lives in Ireland, Paul Kingsnorth, who writes a lot of really interesting stuff on this. Uh, How do you feel about it? Where do you fall? So um, I would generalize your statement. There are some people who find uh, complex systems exciting uh, because of the potential to produce something that's bigger than us. I think we actually, I don't want to divide people into, into buckets. I was I read a great, great quote this morning that said the, the line between good and evil runs through every person's heart. And I think that's true about the, the line of uh, control and emergence. It runs through mm-hmm. every person's heart. We all want to be part of something bigger where the purpose and the outcome is somehow bigger than all any the sum of our individual contributions. I think that that is extremely satisfying to us as humans. But we also really want to be in control. We, we, we are risk averse and we don't want things to get out of control. And so um, in the, the technical space, I think there, there is a bunch of people who focus very much on the inevitability of technology and fear that outcome, And as you pointed out. And there's some people who look at it as essentially it's going to be great. I think in some ways... The inevitability part that Matt Ridley talks about, and I think Kevin Kelly also talks about uh, a good amount, I see that as sort of more of a metaphor. I mean, what they're saying essentially is that the development of technology is a complex emergent system. I can't disagree with that. That's true. But that doesn't mean that um, it by itself is... uh, that we have no influence on it. And I think that's... I I think... Matt Ridley goes a little too far in that quote that you gave. Um, if, if we cannot have an effect on technology, um, well, if that was true, then, then technology, all of the technologies that we have today would have come about much, much earlier. There's no reason that Rome, there's no fundamental reason that's different. There's no fundamental thing about the human body and brain that's different now than in Rome. What's different is society, and and there were ideas that really mattered. And I, I you know, Deidre McCloskey, who I, I quote pretty uh, heavily in the book as well, points this out. There were important ideas that created an environment where innovation was a positive thing, not a negative thing, and where producing something and selling it to people was seen as, uh, you know, um, useful and noble rather than. Uh, taking advantage of people's needs in order to profit. And so I think that those ideas are really important and that the the environment in which technology continues to serve the needs of human society 
are ones that require a certain set of ideas in order to allow people to innovate, to support that. And then also for people to experiment with and adapt those innovations into their own lives. And so um, I do think that we affect the production of technology. I do think that we, even as individuals, you mentioned uh, uh, Borlaug, um, uh, you know, as individuals, sometimes we can generate innovations that Sure, maybe if we hadn't done it, somebody else might have done it in the future. But there's no guarantee that that's true, uh, I don't think. And so um, uh, so I don't see technology as inevitable. I don't see uh, certain types of technology as you know taking over or having a mind of their own. I think technology is just the word we use for how humans use tools. And I think we're going to keep experimenting to use tools uh, to solve human needs, which are ever expanding and, and never satisfied. And so in that sense, we will continue to develop new technologies, um, but it takes a certain ideological framework, uh, economic framework to make that innovation rapid and widely beneficial rather than, um, you know, periodic maybe even backsliding and maybe only uh, applicable or beneficial to a, a, a small few. I like your <clears throat> comment at the outset about the, the line between uh, a desire for control and a desire for emergent order. Um, actually going way back, David Brooks in his book, The Social Animal, which I guess is like a decade old now, talks about limerence which is sort of, um, I hope I'm getting this right, the, the feeling of satisfaction of contributing within an emergent order. But huh. that goes within all of us. So to, to go back, say, to King's North for a moment, I'm confident he would say something like, you know, I, I'm not against emergent order at all. I am concerned that one form of emergent order, the traditions of our, um, of our church and our society and our culture, that interwoven tapestry is being bulldozed by another form of emergent order, which is the emergent order of technology. Uh, I just wanted to get that out there that, that yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's, more, it's more complicated and, and the people who are against say, uh, or terrified by the technium, they, they, they are themselves complex beings with complex interesting views. And so I'm glad you're, you're making sure we're not um, straw manning people. I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, so to, to tie that in maybe for, for one more question about this. So related to the technium uh, is the concept of the great acceleration, uh, which you mentioned, you know, the Romans are not uh, different biologically from us. So yeah, the great difference is we have this process. And in a way, I'll, I'll continue to push on this point that like the technium, it, it's part of the fact that we going back 500 years ago started to do this sort of... Um, new method of incremental change. And, uh, you know, we now call it the scientific method. And it's sort of, um, I, I still think it's fair to say it's taken on a life of its own to a degree. We see now rapid and indeed accelerating change across technology and earth systems. And you might say cultural mores do you think that humans who are a very adaptive species, but can we keep up psychologically and sociologically with uh, an emergent order that is by all measures, you know, speeding up? Uh, I, I mean, I'm an optimist, so I think yes, but 
I, there will be like pretty serious challenges. I think the rapidity of technological innovation means that we are um, encountering as a complex system society, we are encountering new things more frequently than we did in the past. And that momentum that I talked about of complex adaptive systems means that big changes are, they're prompt big reactions often. So big changes to an outside environment can, can prompt a big uh, pushback from, you know, something within the system. And so I would expect to see that technology is driving some big changes. But what that often means is in a complex system, um, it's that disruption is a key part of getting over what's called like a local maximum, right? So we've, we've reached a certain point in society and it seems like, you know, we're at a local maximum. I don't know if that's the right metaphor here, but it can mean that because society is so complicated that there's no one maximum, but as a metaphor, um, sometimes uh, when you're at the top of a hill, you know, a, in a mountain range, if you're at the top of a hill in a mountain range, you might have to go down a little bit to go to the top of the, to get to the, the highest point in the, the mountain range. That's, that's the idea of a local maximum. And I'm not saying that society will need to decline in order to reach a higher point. What I mean is that certain areas uh, within society are going to face challenges that may look very disorderly in order for a new emergent order to, to come about. And that is, so Kings North might say, well, then let's just stop. Let's not descend into that um, uh, chaos. Let's not, in, in, let's not encounter that disorder. Uh, and I would say, uh, I would say if the goal is to reach uh, a higher state or to, to um, improve things, those effects are going to happen and that we should, we, should, we should be honest about that. And we should try to find the ways to get through that period as uh, smoothly and as disruption-free as possible. And so I don't, I mean, I'm talking a lot sort of in economic terms. And I, I think the obvious parallel is to things like automation that might uh, make certain types of jobs obsolete, which has been a concern around technology forever, all the way back to the original Luddites. Uh, but, but I think your question was broader about sort of sociologically and psychologically, are, are we capable of doing that? Um, uh, I think so. I, I, I think the human, it's not just the human body. It's not, that's adaptive. It's not our physical being, but it is the, the complex web of things that we've created across society, whether that be markets, um, different types of government institutions, uh, family institutions, lots of things that we've generated over time through experience uh, and conflict with the world and trying to solve problems. We have this web of things. And I think if we allow that web if we, if we try to explore all of the ways that we can uh, encounter challenge and that we can try to solve problems rather than, I think we often too often focus very narrowly on maybe government levers uh, to, to address some of these challenges. If we, 
if we open our minds to all of the different ways that we can as a society deal with the challenges of technology, of new technology, and take advantages of the benefits, I think we'll be better suited um, to this fast and rapid change. But people, again, worry about control, they feel out of control, and often we need to get past that tribal instinct to hand control over to that leader who's then going to make the decisions for all of us, uh, because that's a situation in which you reduce the complexity of the system, it serves fewer purposes, and ultimately, uh, I think you tend to serve the purpose of the the chief or the the leader rather than um, the you know the population as a whole. And so, I worry yeah. about that outcome. I I think to a large degree, humans just do. Uh, we muddle along. I don't think as many humans need a um, really uh, logical cosmic structure in their head in order to get up and go about their business in the day is, is one response I have to that yeah. sort of qualm. And, and then another is, I, I think a lot of it is based, and I'm sure if, if we had Paul Kingsnorth on, he'd have a lot to say on this topic. So I understand that, but I, yeah. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the past was like. Um, <laughs> you know, like being a medieval peasant doesn't seem like it was uh, all that great. And um, you talk about serving the big man. I mean, a lot of past society um, was was built on serving the whims of of a few people at the top. So I, I, I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding about our current situation and how good we have it. Yeah. Um, there's this sort of romantic world that I think exists mainly just in, in people's heads. Yeah. Well, nostalgia is a, nostalgia is a real uh, thing. And uh, again, a psychological phenomenon where we screen out um, the bad things we didn't like about the past because uh, it makes us feel better to do so. Well, I'm going to actually close with a quick, we've been talking about Rome. I love the tale of the emperor Theodosius the first. So this is a late empire. He, uh, he needed to decide whether to launch a civil war within the empire to try to reunify it during the period when it was fracturing and to decide whether to do this, he didn't consult economists or uh, military advisors. He sent a eunuch down to Egypt to consult a hermit uh, who would give a prophecy about whether to go to war. And so this hermit who just lives in like a cave and, you know, came out and said, there'd be great bloodshed, but you'll win. Theodosius said, awesome, went, launched the war and he won. And, uh, you know, that's, that's about the degree that a lot of people are, are muddling through um, <laughs> on a personal level, on a societal level, businesses. I'm well, Anyway, Neil, <laughs> your book is called Getting Out of Control. I'm so glad you let us get out of control on this episode and talk about, you know, the search for meaning. So absolutely. The book, which I have in hand here, Getting Out of Control, Emergent Leadership in a Complex World. Neil, where can people purchase this wonderful book? Uh, where can they get further exposure to these ideas? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the book is available on every platform uh, that you would want to order it on. Um, I have a Substack where I'm trying to share some of the, explore some of the web of ideas that we talked about today. Uh, it's at outofcontrol.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Neil underscore Chilson. Um, I tweet about this and lots of other things, but all of it is in a very complex adaptive system way connected to the idea of emergent order. 
Um, and I, in some ways, call myself a, an evangelist for emergent order because I do think that is it's an idea that if you really get it in your gut, it gives you more insight. Um, I think much more insight than a hermit in a cave in Egypt would. Uh, it gives you a process to think about some of these difficult problems, um, even if it doesn't give you the answers. I've been a fan of Neil's work since long before I was doing this podcast or sort of uh, on the scene. So I encourage all of our listeners to uh, follow him on Twitter and, and keep up with his work. Neil, this has been so much fun. It's been great. Thanks so much, Corbin. I'm Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Till next time. Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.